from KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. And I'm news director Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, as Teton County continues to grapple with how to fund new housing efforts, local advocates are working to promote ways to help people with disabilities. Let's do this. This is who we are. This is who we believe ourselves to be as a small, welcoming, inclusive community. We can dream big. And another Jacksonite is revamping a famed local theater as a home for the arts. What I've witnessed in the past, especially as a local artist, is a a lack of attention to what the community needs to feel a sense of unity. Those stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. As Wyoming finally moves into spring, we're now seeing the aftermath of a devastating winter to big game. In some of the country's largest antelope and mule deer herds, death rates are as high as 50% in adults. And as Wyoming Public Radio's Caitlin Tan reports, wildlife officials have scrambled to figure out what to do. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 on that side. On a county road just south of Pinedale, Vahe Olivergen is counting dead antelope near his home. 16 down there. There's a dead one and a, and a doe sitting next to it. Oh, poor thing. Oh, it's a young fawn is what it is. Last year's fawn. Look at how skinny the poor thing is. Normally, there'd be hundreds of antelope this time of year grazing sagebrush and spring grass. But instead, there's piles of dead antelope on top of a blanket of snow. Some are still alive, but barely. Look at this eagle sitting here for an easy fist. Yep, it's a banquet. (laughs) This is the result of an incredibly harsh winter in southwest Wyoming. Compared to past years, this winter started earlier and has lasted longer. Also, there's been so much snow and cold weather. We're talking multiple weeks of 40 below temperatures. This was compounded with a rare bacterial pneumonia disease that broke out in the sublet antelope herd. It's one of the largest in the country at about 40,000. And based on radio caller data, nearly half might die by the time the snow melts. The Wyoming Range mule deer herd, one of the largest in the world, also took a huge hit. Basically all of the fawns, the next generation, have died, and an estimated 45% of adults. The situation is so dire that Wyoming's Governor Mark Gordon recently held two emergency meetings with residents in Pinedale and Rollins. We want to hear from you thoughts about uh, things that we should look at, things that we should be considering. And residents are frustrated. Many said they feel like the state isn't doing enough to keep the animals alive. Sublet County resident Tyler Wilson suggested to plow these roads and kick some hay out and feed them like they did in the old days. But the Game and Fish says deer and antelope can't digest hay very well. In fact, it could even kill them. And plowing the snow could damage sagebrush, which takes years to recover. Mainly, residents like Jim Shell called for severely limiting or nixing hunting seasons altogether this year. Hunting in Wyoming, it's a privilege for all of us. It's It's not a right we have, it's a privilege. 
The Game and Fish is proposing to make cuts to hunting quotas. Tags for antelope in southwest Wyoming will mostly be cut in half, and no does or fawns will be available. For the Wyoming range mule deer herd, there will only be tags for antlered bucks with three points or more, and the season will be cut from three weeks to two. But Director Brian Nesvik says that won't solve everything. It's all about, at the end of the day, how we make females be productive and have lots of fawns. Nesvik says that comes down to quality of habitat. With all the snow this winter, vegetation is going to thrive. Still, some residents pushed back on Nesvik, wanting to know if finances are playing a role in having any hunting this year. That's because 85% of the department's revenue comes from recreational tags like hunting. We will not be making any decisions, any decisions about hunting seasons based on revenue for the department. I want to make that very clear. Notably, both of these mule deer and pronghorn herds have slowly declined over the last decade. And the Game and Fish has invested heavily in trying to understand why the Wyoming Range mule deer herd is declining. That's because the mule deer are a point of pride for Wyomingites, like Star Valley resident Logan Hedges. It's hard for me to look at this kid and explain that to him. A kid that loves to hunt, I would love him to have the opportunities that I had growing up. And they're just not there. There's like one, two, three, four, five of them laying down dead and one very sickly looking buck within, sitting within them with bones sticking out of there. Vahe Alavergan counts a few more dead antelope before turning into his driveway. He won't be hunting this year. If anything, he'll buy a tag and not use it. I hope that they don't have any tags available this year, this next couple of years probably. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caitlin Tan in Pinedale. The Game and Fish Commission approved cuts to hunting tags in late April. However, as the snow melts and we understand the devastation of this winter more, emergency changes can still be made. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. I'm Tyler Pratt. Teton County can be a challenging place for many residents. One of the country's premier vacation destinations has long catered to visitors and the ultra-wealthy. Facing a crisis of affordability, leaders are trying to help those who live and work in the community stay here. But are solutions coming fast enough? For people with developmental disabilities, there are huge barriers to achieving independence, going from school to adulthood, and moving out of the family house. As part of our new series on housing, employment, and affordability in Jackson Hole, KHOL's Hannah Mersbach reports on efforts to help this community live on their own. The sounds of TV, squeaky toys, and other loud noises fill the Barts residence on a weekday morning. A lot of moving parts. There's a lot going on around here. Cindy Bartz is the mother of Jas Bartz, a 21-year-old with intellectual disabilities. He's sitting on a beanbag in his bedroom, surrounded by stuffed animals. Jas has Fragile X Syndrome, what Cindy describes as a mix of autism and cognitive impairment. He uses high-pitched screams to get his mom's attention. He's nonverbal, so he uses the iPad to communicate as well. Right now, he's saying he wants to watch an episode of Sesame Street. Jas graduated from high school last summer, where Cindy says he got a lot of support, care, and therapy. 
But she says leaving that system is like falling off a cliff. It's been a little bit of a jolt to the system just to all of a sudden be the one who's managing everything. Cindy says she wants a future for her son where he can move out of the house, just like other young adults. The thing that we're missing is some of that infrastructure of literally housing communities so that people can continue after they leave the care of their families to live as independently and as integrated into the community as possible. Jass is one of over 3,000 people in Teton County living with some kind of disability, intellectual or physical, according to recent U.S. Census data. But the residential program for people with intellectual disabilities in Jackson, the county's largest town, only has 12 beds, and they've struggled with staffing. April Norton sits on the lawn outside her office. She leads the Teton County Jackson Affordable Housing Department. How do we create housing for for adults living with disabilities? At the end of the day, like, how do we create livable housing that includes everyone? That's like the challenge and opportunity. In a town with one of the highest costs of living in the country, officials like Norton are grappling with how to keep people with developmental disabilities in the community. Local elected leaders recently said they would consider hiring a consultant to look at this. It's a turning point individually for our organization because in the past we have not had either uh, senior housing or housing for people living with disabilities really within our scope of work. There's no timeline for when the region may be able to boost housing supply for people with disabilities. But some in the community are helping members find other ways to lay down roots. Caroline Croft Este founded Vertical Harvest. Lettuce and tomatoes line the walls of the three-story indoor farm in downtown Jackson. About 40% of our workforce identifies as having a disability. It's a totally inclusive, integrated workspace. Croft Este used to be a case manager for people with disabilities. I was running into roadblock after roadblock with a lot of the young adults that I was working with that were about to graduate from high school. There wasn't much around about competitive employment or employment opportunities for people with disabilities. Within a year of starting the farm, Croft Este says her employees with disabilities had built a community within the workplace, whether in the tomato department or the packaging one. She says she hopes to translate that model into community housing. Where you have, you know, a mixed use of kind of housing and individuals living there that have um, maybe disabilities, maybe some from the elderly community, maybe just some young single 20-something-year-olds that are here for the summer. Walking through the building, she says hello to Tim McLaurin in the front entrance. Hey, Mr. Tim. McLaurin is an employee at Vertical Harvest. He has Down syndrome, and he speaks quickly, saying he'd love to see more efforts to house folks with disabilities. I think that would be cool and awesome, and if they're going to have that happen, it would mean a lot to our community because... McLaurin lives on his own in East Jackson, but he says more support is needed for people who can't be as independent. Like, we do want to get housing for people with different abilities. For me, I will support that all the way. Back down at the Bart's home, Cindy says that Jas also spends time at Vertical Harvest getting work experience. I've always dreamed of him being known and loved and visible, not hidden away. As Teton County continues to grapple with how exactly to fund new housing efforts and where they should go, 
Cindy is spearheading conversations in the community about the future for people just like her son. Let's do this. This is who we are. This is who we believe ourselves to be as a small, welcoming, inclusive community. We can dream big. And while nobody's breaking ground yet, she says she's optimistic about the road ahead. Hannah Merzbach, KHL News. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Hannah Mersbach. Over a dozen songwriters from across the Cowboy State came together to create a new album, dubbed Wyofolk. Hoback-based musician Aaron Davis brought the artists together to record original tracks in a Teton County cabin. Davis recently caught up with music director Jack Catlin at Boise's Tree Fort Music Festival to discuss the new release and what it means to be a musician in Wyoming. It's an honor. I have a lot of pride for Wyoming, and even though... My friends in, in Laramie would, would not consider Teton County a part of Wyoming. Uh, I think they call it the northernmost town in Colorado. But um, that's okay because uh, I still, it doesn't affect the way that I feel about Wyoming or living in Teton County. So the Wyoming Arts Council has done a great job with the Wyoming Showcase, exposing Wyoming bands to a larger audience in a bigger market like Boise. How important is it for you to have that community of like-minded musicians, artists, and creatives coming together from a state, you know, maybe not necessarily known for its music and supporting each other? Oh, it's it's huge. Um, it, some people might be familiar with the Wyomericana Caravan that my wife Cedar Rose and I started in 2000, 2013. And the impetus was exactly, you know, this is to be able to pull musicians together um, and trade gigs as we're moving across the state or moving across the region. The markets are few and far between in our part of the country. And so being able to team up in a small state where we get less recognition anyway, um, you know, we act to make a bigger splash as a community. Um, And I think that there are certain entities in our state that are really making a huge splash like Western AF Um, and some other places that are really putting Wyoming on the map. And um, we're in that age where you can all of a sudden make a big impact um, in the least populated state. It's opened the opportunities up more, but it's still, uh, you know, you got to keep after it and look for the opportunities. So speaking of Wyoming Arts Council, they had a significant hand in your new Wyo Folk Project featuring 14 previously unreleased works by 14 of Wyoming's celebrated songwriters. Can you tell us about that and how the whole process worked? First of all, just feel completely fortunate that the Wyoming Arts Council was able to earmark this this money, and which was ultimately approved by the Wyoming Legislature and the National Endowment for the Arts. And so I was able to, this is really a kind of a dream project that came out of the Wyomericana Caravan Tour which is like pulling different artists together to go on the road. And this, I wanted it to be something that lasted longer um, in recorded form. Um, So there's certainly a lot of artists that I was able to tour with and work with through that tour. 
um, but also wanted to bring in other artists that I hadn't worked with in that capacity. And honestly, like, I hope that it's a volume one because I came up with a list of 70 songwriters across the state. And this by no means is what I consider it the best or, or the top notch or whatever. I think it's, I hope that it's volume one and I'm, I'm really proud of the record. I think it's incredible. And for me, it's great to be able to, like I can say like, it's a stellar record. It's not my record. I don't feel like, you know, I, I have one song on it, but people brought their A-game and um, it was just an honor to be able to capture the music and have people come to me, be able to offer artists a stipend to come to me and to record. Usually it's the other way around. So I was able to offer artists to come to me, record a song, and then mix it and um, collaborate with them through the whole process. I mean, there was everything from live recordings on the spot to um, you know multi-track textured sessions and overdubs. So it, it spanned spanned a lot, and um, I think people were really going to enjoy it. That's awesome. So it must have been very enriching, satisfying as a creative to collaborate with so many different artists throughout Wyoming from all different areas and backgrounds of wyoming yeah. can you touch on maybe a couple of the highlights of the album besides your track of course yeah sure um one that sticks out is um alicia craft uh, she's a wyoming native from um, encampment wyoming and she came in with a drummer friend uh, who's played on some of her records before and um, she had sent me some pre-production stuff but one thing that we did during her session, which was about a 12 hour session in a day, we did a lot of experimenting and a lot of pulling out of sounds and, and really manipulating sounds to really figure out, cause she had a vision in her head. And um, we tried so many different things that I'd say like, you know, 30% we kept in the end. And um, we were able to pretty much mix it on the spot too, which I didn't do really with much of the other songs cause we didn't have time everybody brings a different vision and so somebody else asked me like was it hard personality wise to work with all these people and i can honestly say like everybody was so open and and easy to work with that it made the creative process just so smooth and so much fun because there was um yeah it, it didn't feel like there was any tension with any of the artists or anything so just getting off on a good foot and hit the ground running and having a good time. I think that speaks to just being an artist from Wyoming and immediately feeling that connection with your fellow artist and being like, this is the best thing ever. Like, let's collaborate and make something magical. Sure. And I think a lot of it has to do with the genre. You know, I mean, we're not trying to sell. We're not trying to produce numbers in terms of revenue. So we're not producing all of these songwriters are not trying to produce a product that is going to be commercially viable. They're trying to produce something that they can be proud of. And so that's the bottom line for this project is like, it's just coming from the heart and there's, there's, there's no alternative motives beyond that. That was Aaron Davis talking about the Wyo Folk Project. The album is now streaming with physical CDs available for purchase online. You're listening to Jackson Impact. Local institution, the Pink Garter Theater, has reopened. It was once a premier stage for live music in the region, but it shuttered several years ago. 
It's now being rebranded as a destination for local theater arts. And as KHL's Tyler Pratt reports, residents say it's returning a sense of community back to the area. The pandemic wasn't kind to the Pink Garter Theater. In the spring of 2020, owners announced its closure, where it stayed for years, lights off and collecting dust and cobwebs. Sam Cook grew up in Jackson and remembers when it shut down. His first thought, there goes another one. I think it's, you know, kind of the same swan song as some other Jackson places that are kind of old local establishments, right, that close down and they kind of just fade into, into history. Right smack off Jackson Center Square, the upstairs theater is unpresuming on the outside. But step inside, through a lobby, around the corner, and up some more stairs. Suddenly, a grand proscenium arch envelops the stage. It's a very characteristic place in Jackson. Longtime resident, comedian, director, and actor Andrew Munns is leasing out the theater, which is now under new local ownership. It has a long history uh, that is kind of embedded in the walls that are painted maroon and have lots of kind of like old-timey sconces attached to them and chandeliers. But Munns says it's a bit broken. A lot of those sconces need light bulbs. A lot of the chandeliers are so caked with dust uh, that they are casting dust shadows when I shine lights on them. (laughs) There are uh, lots of scrapes, scuffs, so much to kind of clean off and brush off to bring this theater back to its original condition. So he recently enlisted the help of the community to get the theater up to snuff, and dozens showed up on a Sunday to volunteer their time. Local electrician D. Liner is standing on scaffolding, fixing lights. I'd love to see more comedy and more live performances. It makes me happy. I like to laugh. I like to be entertained. And after the last three or four years, it doesn't hurt to laugh and smile and have fun. Liner says the Pink Garter doesn't need a whole bunch of work, just some tender loving care. And she says it's all worth it because Jackson needs the theater. It brings people together, whether you're in the audience just laughing or in crying or whatever you're doing enjoying, or if you're in the production, there's just community. It's um, fun. And Andrew Munns, who's launching the theater, says Jackson needs community. What I've witnessed in the past, especially as a local artist, is a, a lack of attention to what the community needs to, to feel a sense of unity. Jackson is a town constantly in flux, where tourists, residents, and businesses come and go. Munns, who's also left and came back in the past, is now laying down roots and is rebirthing the Pink Garter through his new nonprofit, Tumbleweed Creative Arts. And I think when the heart is there, that's where the community really kind of comes together and gathers. And, and I'm very, very intent and focused on establishing this theater as a place where that community can gather in support of local art. And part of this means rebranding. Munn says the theater, which has changed over the decades from a home for local performances to a hub for touring music acts, has an identity disorder. There hasn't really been a very cohesive vision for the theater, and I think it has lacked any real character development over the years. So that's something that I'm really focused on, is to bring character back to the Pink Garter. And locals are playing characters. Munns is launching his new show, I Can Ski Forever, 
The Last Run. It's the latest installment of a musical comedy series he's performed in Jackson that pokes fun at both visitors and residents. Marissa Sullivan is in the cast. Oh my goodness, this is huge for us. So being able to actually, every step to be planned out in the space that you are doing it, to be able to hear yourself singing in the space, it's so vitally important to us. Sullivan, who's known Munns since high school, says having the same theater to rehearse and perform in is a luxury she and others haven't had in Jackson. It can be expensive or there just isn't time in a venue schedule. We've never had a space of our own that we could just, I hate to say this, take over. We need to be able to stretch our wings and to be able to explore and experiment and that happens so much better when you have your own theater that's home versus space to space to space. Jackson, with its rustic charm, is often thought of as a symbol of the American West. But the West also sits in U.S. history as a place of great risk. And Andrew Munn says he knows he's made a bold move taking on the Pink Garter Theater. It's very scary. I have zero money in my bank account. I just have a lot of ambition and a lot of good people in my world that are willing to help out and kind of work with me as we create this nonprofit. But Munn says since it can be tough to be confident about the future, for now, he's focusing on the present. What can I do today? What are we doing today? What is right now? That is the only way that I'm able to function as an artist <laughs> because putting my attention to the current moment and rather than getting too bogged down in, in like the, the worries of the future or all of the trauma of the past, it dictates my creative perspective, it dictates my motivation, and ultimately I'm just very excited to see what comes next. But today is today, today is the focus. And for locals like Sam Cook, born and raised in Jackson, the Pink Garter's reopening signals a change. There's like a, there's a hint of like a refreshing air coming. You know, spring, spring is around the corner and I think what the next few months through the summer into the fall are gonna have for this place, it's gonna be refreshing to see down the road. I Can Ski Forever, the last run is just the beginning of Andrew Munz's vision for the Pink Garter Theater. Expect drag and comedy shows, soirees and more musicals, all put on by locals on your Jackson calendar in the weeks and months to come. Tyler Pratt, KTOL News. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt. And I'm Hannah Mersbach. And this is KHOL Jackson Hole Community Radio.